0: Hey everybody, this is Cale Clark. Welcome back to The Faith Explained on Relevant Radio and the Relevant Radio mobile app. So good to be with you as we continue delving into St. Paul's letter to the Romans, the greatest letter of all time. Apologies to all you letter writers out there, but he was the best. He was absolutely the GOAT. All right, let's look at Romans chapter 5 again. If you want to open up your Bible, this is an absolutely crucial passage that we're going to look at today because St. Paul is going to explicate for us the doctrine of original sin. So let's read it together, starting with Romans chapter 5, verse 12 and following. He writes, Therefore, as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all men sinned, Sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. But sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sins were not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift in the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the effect of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brings justification. If because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Then as one man's trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one man's act of righteousness leads to acquittal and life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, So by one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. Law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Okay, so let's go back now to verse 12 through 14. This is really, really important because he talks about original sin. And you're listening to The Faith Explained on Relevant Radio. I'm your host, Cale Clark. Now, G.K. Chesterton, the great British writer and convert to Catholicism, he once said that original sin is the only doctrine of the Catholic Church that you can prove simply by walking down the street. In other words, a lot of the things that we know to be true, uh, because of our faith, have been revealed by God. But we can't access them all through our physical senses. We can know that they're true, such as the the reality that God is a Trinity of persons. But original sin, we can see it. Sometimes we even feel it tangibly when people sin against us and we sin against them. It's there. It's in society, and a lot of people say, when it comes to original sin, how in the world? Uh, is this my problem? It's not my fault. I didn't do anything. Adam was the one who was to blame here. Well, we'll talk about Adam and Adam's family values, if you will, to use a, a pun. I stole that from Scott Hahn, but it's a good one. It's not your fault. You still have to suffer because of it, but God could say back to you, well, yeah, maybe you didn't do it. Maybe you didn't commit the original sin, but. You also didn't do anything to deserve my forgiveness either, which comes through another individual, the new Adam, Jesus Christ. And, and this, is, this is a great, great passage here, especially when we look at verse 14, when Paul writes the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. Now, this this whole idea of type, uh, speaking of Scott Hahn, Scott Hahn and Curtis Mitch in their commentary in the Ignatius study Bible on Romans, there's a nice little word study that they put together on type. Now, in the Greek New Testament, of course, Romans was originally written in Greek. It's the Greek word typos. Now, what does that mean? It means figure, it means example, it means pattern. It's two times used in Romans, it's used 13 other times in the rest of the New Testament. And one of the meanings of this word, just the general meaning in the Greek language, is when an impression is made, when, think about a typewriter, when, when the letter on the old-fashioned typewriter, when it, when it sort of has the ink on it, and it, it hammers away at the paper, it leaves an impression of that letter, whatever it might be. Same thing when, it, when a seal is made, like think about a, a royal seal of a king, like the, the unfortunate King Henry VIII, when he puts his royal seal on, okay, you know, it's embossed, it comes from him. So that's, that's one definition of the word type or typos in Greek. But in the New Testament, it's used in a slightly different way. Actually, one, one intriguing way that's used is to describe the prints of the nails on the body of Jesus Christ, in his hands, and really it's part of the wrist, but in John chapter 20, verse 25, it's one of the resurrection appearances of our Lord. He, and he invites Thomas to, hey, touch the nail prints. Check it out, plunge your hand into my side. The wound is still there, my resurrection body. And so that that word is used, typos, to describe those nail prints, which are permanent. He still keeps them. That's how you know it's him, it's his ID. What about something else? St. Paul t- says later, actually in the very next chapter in Romans 6, 17, what does he write? He says, thanks be to God, you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And that's, that standard of teaching is the type. It's, 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 it's an example of a pattern of holy and good teaching, the standard that's held up for all of us to to adhere to, and also he uses it in other ways as well. In Philippians chapter three, verse seventeen, uh, we see this. Saint Paul writes, "Brethren, join in imitating me, and mark those who so walk as you have an example in us. You know, you have this type, you have this pattern." First Thessalonians chapter one, verse seven. This is a, this is another really good one here. Paul writes. You became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. So this idea of the example, you became a type, you became a model, if you will. And then Titus, Titus chapter 2, verse 7, we see these words. St. Paul writes, Show yourself in all respects a model of good deeds, and in your teaching show integrity Gravity, the next verse, and sound speech that cannot be censured, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say of us. So, this idea of of Titus being expected to be a model uh, to the other believers. So, those are some other uses of the word type or typos in the New Testament. But when it comes to theology, when it comes to biblical theology, we're talking about a person, a place, a thing, or an event. In scripture, specifically in the Old Covenant scriptures, that points forward to a greater person, a greater event in the New Covenant. So the basic premise here is that God writes the world the way that a human author writes with words. If you're reading a novel, say by Stephen King, my my wife is a huge Stephen King fan. She's devouring all of his novels. Any good author, if he's writing kind of a thriller, will We'll use the the technique, the literary technique of foreshadowing, kind of tip you off to something that's going to happen in the future. Well, God does this, but he doesn't do it with words. He does this with history, his story, and his interactions with us in the world. This is how it's done, quite literally. He uses Old Testament figures, places, events to foreshadow greater realities of the new covenant, the time that we're living in now. And this is one of them right here. This is one of the most famous ones, if not the most famous one, that Adam, and he literally says says this, Adam was a type of the one who was to come, the new Adam, the second Adam, Jesus Christ. So St. Paul in other places, he uses the experiences of the wilderness generation, Moses, to talk about what the church is going through in his day. St. Peter uses the flood in the time of Noah as a type of baptism. Uh, and it says, that this prefigures baptism, which now saves you. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 21. And you can read more about this in the Catechism, paragraphs 128, 129, and 130. But here's, here's, here's the deal here. The fact of the matter is that because Jesus is the new Adam, and Adam, of course, was the first man the, the first human, a representative of all humanity. All humanity is contained in Adam. Of course, Eve issues from his side, and ultimately all of us do as well. Because Jesus is a new Adam who plunged, of course, the entire human race into sin. Thanks, Adam. We'll talk about original sin again in just a second. But because Jesus is the new Adam, that means his salvation is also for all people. It's not just for the Israelites. But it's for everybody. And I, I heard a great presentation on Romans by uh, Dr. Brant Petrie. Uh, he's a great, great young Catholic uh, scripture scholar. Fantastic. He may be the best in America. There's a lot of great scholars, but he is right up there. And he has a wonderful series of, of talks that he gave on Romans called Sin and Salvation. And he, and he points out a few things about this whole idea of Adam uh, and and how uh, Christ is a new Adam. One of the things that you look at when you when you read Luke's gospel, uh, Luke has a ge- or, uh, Luke has a genealogy of Jesus very similar to that of Matthew. It's a little bit different, but it's in Luke chapter four. And one of the things that it says about Adam in Luke four is that Adam is called the son of God. Now that's intriguing because we know, of course, that Jesus is called the son of God. It's a it's a big deal, especially in Matthew's gospel. But Adam is called a son of God in Luke, and that's really intriguing, because what happens when there is a, a father and a son? There's this term that's used in Scripture. It goes back to Genesis as well, and we we, we dealt with this in the Genesis series on the Faith Explained. Image and likeness. We we, ha- we spent a lot of time talking about this, but let me just summarize by saying that this is a term, uh, image and likeness. This has to do with a father generating children. That's why Adam, of course, after the death of Abel, after Cain kills Abel, God gives Adam another son named Seth. And it says in Genesis that Seth was fashioned, if you will, in the image and likeness of Adam. So Adam was God's created son, as it were, made in the image and likeness of God but Jesus is God's uncreated Son, His eternal Son, His divine Son, God the Son. It's a totally different ball game. But you see how that that's just one parallel, but there are so many more. The first Adam, of course, he was tempted by the devil, the fallen angel, in a garden. Of course, the Garden of Eden. The new Adam, Jesus Christ, well, you could say he was he was kind of tempted in, in the garden too, in a certain sense, in the garden of Gethsemane. And there's a great, great scene in the, in the movie, The Passion of the Christ. I think this is really well done by Mel Gibson, where he depicts Satan trying to tempt Jesus as he's praying in the garden of Gethsemane, the agony in the garden. And the Satan is saying things to Jesus such as, you yeah, know, your father doesn't really love you. There's no way you can pull this off. I mean, he's just trying to trash talk him, if you will. And of course, Jesus stands up and then he crushes the head of this actual garden snake slithering on the ground, kind of foreshadowing what he was going to do to the devil himself on the cross. He's like, get out of here, Satan. It's not going to work, but nice try. But Jesus was also tempted, the new Adam, he was actually tempted more so in the desert. Of course, in Matthew chapter 4, you can also read about this in Luke chapter 4, and he resists the temptation of the fallen angel, unlike our first parent, Adam. And what happened with Adam was he was disobedient. He ate of the fruit of the tree. Jesus, however, was obedient to his father and he suffered death on a tree. And the fruit of that tree is what we receive, the Eucharist, eternal life. There's so many things we could say. And as Petrie points out, that the New Testament writers, whenever they're talking about the cross, they always talk about Jesus dying on a tree. Why do they say that? Why don't they use the term cross? Well, they do talk about the cross as well. But what they're doing is they're trying to make a conscious link between the first Adam and the second Adam. Because in both cases, a tree is involved. The tree of the cross, and then there's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which Adam disobediently, the fruit and because of that he got cut off along with Eve from the tree of life they were kicked out of the garden and the early church fathers really spoke of the cross as the the new tree of life for which we can receive eternal life And, and of course that's not where the typology ends we could also talk about Mary as the new Eve but that would be another show for another day there's a lot of material there we could talk about how both were sinless virgins at the time But Eve believed the word of the fallen angel and brought forth death. Mary believed the word of the good angel, Gabriel, the archangel, and conceived life, brought forth life into the world. And she was there at the foot of the new tree of life, just as Eve was at the foot of the tree uh, from which the forbidden fruit was eaten. So there's so many parallels there, and Justin Martyr, St. Justin Martyr, and so many other church fathers go into these parallels in great detail. But there's so many more parallels that we can point out. One man, Adam, brought sin and death to the rest of humanity. But with Jesus, the new Adam, one man, he's obviously more than a man. He's the God-man. He brings life and salvation to all humanity. Adam's trespass, as Petrie points out, leads to condemnation. But as St. Paul says in Romans, the free gift provided by Jesus Christ, that leads to not condemnation but justification. It's how we get right with God, how we get peace with God. Adam got us kicked out of paradise, but Jesus brings us back to paradise, restoration of that relationship. Not only that communion with God, but also the possibility of life with him in the new heaven, the new earth, the paradise of God, as it says in the book of Revelation. Now it's interesting too because Whenever you hear about paradise in the New Testament, that is new Adam language, as Petrie says. A great example of this is in Luke's gospel, the famous thief on the cross incident. And you can read about this, of course, in Luke chapter 23. Think about this in the context of the new Adam. It says this, one of the criminals who was hanged, of course, there are two other criminals uh, crucified along with our Lord, And Jesus said to him, truly, I say to you, today, you will be with me in paradise, paradise. And the reason why Luke uses that term very, very clearly is because this is echoing the language of the new Adam. We have got to remember, Luke spent a lot of time with St. Paul. He spent a heck of a lot of time as the missionary companion of St. Paul. So they were thinking along the same lines here. Paul's writing about it. In Romans chapter 5, Luke's talking about it in his gospel. And by the way, speaking of Paul, in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 3, St. Paul got kind of a little taste of this paradise. He had this mystical experience, uh, incredible stuff. He's talking about himself, but he says, I don't know whether this is, you know, in the body or out of the body, but I know a guy in Christ, I know this guy, it's him, he just doesn't want to say it, who was transported to the third heaven. He was caught up to paradise. And he experienced things there that he's not allowed to talk about. But that, that's, that's kind of an intriguing angle as well. So I just think this link is unbelievable uh, with Jesus as the new Adam, the paradise of God. And this is what we can get in on when we accept this initial justification, this, this thing that we don't deserve. Restoration with God, we get it back through baptism. And this begins this incredible journey to paradise, the new heaven and the new earth. But we've run out of time for now. We'll get back to this in our next episode of the Roman series, Can You Handle the Truth? I believe in you. I know you can handle it. But now it's time to open up the Faith Explained Q&A mailbag. Let's open it up. Let's go for it. All right, as we open up the Faith Explained Q&A mailbag, I want to remind you that you can email me your question. I'll try to read it and answer it on the air. The email address is faith at relevant F A I T H at relevant radio.com. You can also find me on the X app. My handle there is at Kale Clark, C A L E Clark with an E. So here's, here's a question. It's kind of from me to you. This is a, a bit of a different uh, game that we're going to play today. And of course, in the seasons of Advent and Christmas, which are upon us, such beautiful liturgical seasons of the church, we hear an awful lot, we're going to be hearing an awful lot from the prophet Isaiah, the book of the great prophet Isaiah. Now, why is that the case? Why is Isaiah so identified with Advent and the Christmas season? Well, there's a great little essay that I read, and it's written by a priest named Father Joe Scott. He kind of wrote about this, and I'm going to share with you what what he said. He talked about Gerald O'Collins, a great biblical scholar, theologian. And O'Collins said that the works of the prophet Isaiah, he called it really the fifth gospel. That's kind of interesting, because St. Jerome called the Holy Land the fifth gospel. A lot of things have been called the fifth gospel. But what did he mean by calling Isaiah the fifth gospel? Well, uh, Father Gerald O'Collins said that a lot of the themes that are in the Gospels really you can find their roots and really prophecies about these realities of the life of Jesus in the book of Isaiah. And actually, the, the name Isaiah means Yahweh saves, so this is exactly also what the name Joshua means. And uh, of course, Joshua is the Hebrew name of Jesus, Yeshua. Anyways. It's one of the longest books in the Old Testament. If you look at the uh, book of Isaiah, it, it's, it's, it's absolutely, it's pretty meaty. It's got 66 chapters. And in fact, there's more than one Isaiah who's behind this book. What do I mean by that? Well, scholars think there were at least three prophet Isaiahs. Huh? How is that possible? Well, the book kind of was composed in stages over time. And then there's a final form of the text that made it into your Bible. This should not trouble you at all, because in the Catholic Church, what we're concerned about, what is the Word of God, is the final form of the text. A lot of a lot of documents in the Bible, Old and New Testament, went through this process. They weren't all written in one shot. A good example from the New Testament is in the Gospel of Mark. A lot of people think that, Mark sixteen, you know, some of the final verses of Mark were tacked on later. It doesn't really matter at the end of the day because the final form is what was canonized as scripture by the church. So don't worry about it. Okay, we need to understand what it has to say to us. Well, why do people say that there are three different prophet Isaiah's, as it were? Well. That's because there are different portions of the book. Chapters 40 through 55 are often called deutero Isaiah or Second Isaiah. You might have heard of the deuterocanonical books. Uh, Protestants call them the apocrypha. These are it means second canon, but we say it's actually scripture. It's second canon these deuterocanonical books. Well, there's a deutero Isaiah, chapters 40 through 55, and then chapters 56 through 66 are often called Trito-Isaiah, or Third Isaiah. All right, I don't want to confuse you too much, but we've got one book. We've got one book that maybe went through at least three stages. Well, of course, Jesus was born and lived his life in Roman Palestine, if you will, about 800 years after the life and death of the actual prophet Isaiah. And growing up in the synagogue, Jesus would have read he would have reflected upon. He would have heard probably a lot of sermons preached on the book of Isaiah. It's a big book, and he had a lot to say. And in fact, when Jesus begins his earthly ministry, one of the first things he does in Luke's gospel, chapter 4, he reads a passage from Isaiah, and he says, this has been fulfilled in your hearing. And again, this is, causes a great consternation. Uh, people didn't really like Jesus' homily. He almost got you know, they tried to throw him off the cliff of the town of Nazareth. And he, he of course, uh, moves through the crowd and goes on his way very, very mysteriously and mystically. But having said that, that's the deal. Jesus applies this to himself. He's saying, Isaiah's prophecies are being fulfilled in me. So here's why Isaiah's writings are really, really prominent in Advent and Christmas. Number one, he is this prophet of hope. Talks about this new king, Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. This is a famous passage. The king who is to be born, who will be the wonderful counselor, everlasting father, mighty God, and prince of peace. Now he was probably talking about, in history, the son of King Ahaz, King Hezekiah, who turned out to be a pretty good king in Judah. But obviously we know that there's a deeper meaning to this verse. It actually is a prophecy about Jesus Christ as well. So it's kind of functioning on two levels there. The second reason that you hear about Isaiah a lot during the uh, Advent and Christmas season is that Isaiah talks a lot about the mercy and compassion of God. And this is very much the message of Jesus the mercy, the compassion, the forgiveness that God offers us, that we can get in on this. And this famous passage in Isaiah 53, the suffering servant, is so filled. You've got to read this. It's great spiritual reading for you to read it and think about how these events were fulfilled in the life, and the passion of Jesus Christ. Talks about them plucking out the beard, tearing out the beard, all this stuff. Um, by his stripes we are healed. That That's all in Isaiah, very famous passages. And Isaiah also talks about, here's another reason. He talks about how the salvation that God offers is not just for Israelites, but for every single nation under heaven, the Gentiles as well. That's a big, big part of it. And Jesus, of course, Sets this in motion. It really comes into play, of course, during the life of his mystical body, the church, as the gospel spreads all across the world. And then the last thing, Isaiah is very much known as a prophet of peace and justice. Uh, compassion for the, for the poor. That's a big, big theme in Isaiah's writings. And Jesus talks about this a lot. And, and he was very prophetic on that front, too. So, so much that's in Isaiah that is really crucial to us in the Advent and Christmas season. So as we get into these seasons of the liturgical year, keep this in mind and maybe one day, we'll do a full study on the book of Isaiah right here on the Faith Explained program. If you have a question for me for our Q&A segment, you can send it to this email address, faith at relevantradio.com, F-A-I-T-H at relevantradio.com. That's one place to get me. You can also tag me on the X app, formerly known as Twitter, my handle is still the same, at Kale Clark, C-A-L-E, Clark with an E. I hope you'll join me later today, live at 5 p.m. Central, right here on Relevant Radio for the Cale Clark Show. You can call in and talk to me. I can't wait to uh, be with you then. But until the next episode of The Faith Explained, I want to remind you that if you've missed one, you can check the archives on the Relevant Radio app. There's great share features. You can share these episodes with friends, spread the good word. We want more and more people to really grasp their faith really well with their minds and love it with their hearts and extend those those hands to share it with other people as well. I'm Cale Clark. Thanks for this episode of The Faith Explained, for being my partner in this, and we'll see you in the next one. God bless you.